I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Book of the Month Club is this week's sponsor. They're offering listeners uh, their first book for only $5 with code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. Again, that's code Zibby for your first book for $5 to Book of the Month Club, which, by the way, is amazing. I subscribe every month. I get to pick from five of their favorite books. Um, most of the time, one of them is is by an author I've had on my podcast, and then it just arrives. I've given it as a gift. I adore it, and you will too. So think of it for gifts, and um, for sure, go on bookofthemonth.com and subscribe yourself. I'm here today with Caitlin Moscatello, who's the author of See Jane Win, The Inspiring Story of the Women Changing American Politics. An award-winning journalist, Caitlin has written for New York Magazine's The Cut, Vanity Fair, Time, Elle, Marie Claire, Oh, The Oprah Magazine, and many other publications. She is the founder of Repro, a newsletter about reproductive rights legislation. She currently lives in New York with her husband and son. So thanks, Caitlin, for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Hi, thanks for having me. So your book, See Jane Wynn, please tell us what it's about and what inspired you to write it. Right. So See Jane Wynn, I started working on this book in February of 2017. So this was just a couple months after the 2016 election where many women across this country thought that we were going to see the first female president. We obviously know now that that did not happen. And there was definitely, the public temperature had definitely changed in those months. So right after the election, we know that groups like the ACLU and Planned Parenthood were being inundated with donations from men and women, but mostly from women. And then, of course, there was the Women's March, where so in 60 countries around the world, people were taking to the streets. And right around that time, I want to say it was right around the Women's March, there started to be these early reports that groups like Emerge America and Emily's List, so these groups that train and recruit Democratic women to run for office, they were being just completely flooded with applications. So in like a typical year, maybe there'd be like 900 women who they might be able to get into their fold. There were, I think at that point, there were like 14,000. So it was like very, very clear that something was happening. And so I kind of just decided to follow that. So I write about women. I tend to write about gender. I write about women. I really don't consider myself a political writer, but I was interested in the fact that women were doing this in a big number. And I kind of also saw it as like, if this works, if these women actually run, if they make it on the ballot, so they have to get past their primaries, and if they win, this is really a lasting action. I mean, it's one thing to march. It's one thing to donate. Those are certainly great and worthwhile endeavors. But if we really want to talk about change and we want to talk about getting more women in leadership and getting more women in positions of power and really just getting more better representation, like we're a democracy, we should have more women in office. And so with that, I just started calling these groups and connecting with women who were, many of them were even just thinking about running when I started talking with them. I ended up closely following the journeys of four candidates. So there's Abigail, well, I'll, I guess I'll use their titles because now they're, they actually all ended up winning, but now Congresswoman Abigail Spamberger. So she's a mom of three, a former CIA operative. When I met her, she was, the, I interviewed her over the phone a few times. And then the first time I went down there was right after she launched her campaign and she was running it out of her daughter's playroom. And it was just like complete mayhem basically. And she ended up becoming the first woman to 
ever represent her district in Congress and the first Democrat since 1968. So this was a, in the beginning, was considered a huge long shot of a race. There's London Lamar, who is a state representative, London Lamar, who is now the youngest black woman in the Tennessee state legislature, 27 years old. Anna Eskamani, who was a former Planned Parenthood staffer, and she was able to take her activism and bring that into a political campaign. Now she is a state representative in Florida. She's the first Iranian-American elected to office in Florida. And she ran this really bold progressive campaign in a purple district. So by no means, you know, she was out there talking about abortion access, talking about sensible gun legislation. She lives in the district where the Parkland shooting happened a few years ago, and more than 40 people were gunned down in a night, an LGBTQ nightclub. So she really ran this bold progressive campaign and won, and won by a landslide. And then there's Catalina Cruz. So we're, to have, we're having this conversation here in New York. Catalina Cruz, the yeah. first dreamer elected to office in New York. She she was undocumented when she was growing up and then ended up becoming a U.S. citizen. She's a attorney and is just has the most incredible backstory ever. So I ended up following their journeys closely. And then as I was doing this, the story grew. So I had no idea. People say to me, they're like, oh, like you were really onto something. Like you saw this before anyone. I'm like, I would love if that were the case. But really, I just thought this is a journey. This is a story worth telling. I didn't know. It was constantly a moving target, the whole election. And I didn't know until election night, just like everyone else, that this was an inspiring story. The book was initially, when I pitched it to publishers, which was, again, like back in the spring of 2017, it was C. Jane Run, and then they all won. And so I was talking <laughs> with my editor, and I'm like, well, I guess we could make this, you know, a little, make this C. Jane win. So we ended up changing the title. Wow. Well, that was the book. That was a very long answer. <laughs> it was great to meet you. <laughs> no, that was perfect. I loved it. So you talked about what you were just touching on briefly, the aftermath of the last presidential election. You said, we know now that Clinton's loss, however devastating, signaled a beginning rather than an end. Instead of wallowing passively, women were moved to act. And then when you were talking about how you had planned to write about the personal journeys, you wanted to talk about this greater narrative, which I know we just talked about a little bit, but when you're talking about your focus shifting and when you're actually down in it, like following the people, all the candidates and everything, like take me through how you made that transition. Like, did you say, oh gosh, maybe now I need to like go do research on this, or now I need to bring in all of this, or like, how did you grow the whole scope or did you just sort of passively watch it unfold? No, I mean, nothing was really that passive, I guess. But it didn't yeah, seem I mean, like it, it was, seemed passive from the way you told it. But. It was a, this was a lot of reporting. This is almost two years of reporting. So the main characters in the book, one of the things, what people ask me all the time, like, how, how did you pick the women that you followed? And that was a whole big process. And there are people I interviewed who didn't end up in the book or they ended up in the book in a more minor way. But I wanted women who were going to be really candid with me, who were not going to kind of give me these buttoned up answers, but who also were going to commit to at least one interview a month, who were, would let me come to their homes, to their districts, and let me shadow them. A lot of the interviews, you know, were, these are things, the one thing a candidate doesn't have is extra time. Mm -hmm. So the fact that these women were able to sign up for that was a huge thing. But that was a lot of reporting, a lot of transcripts. I mean, you're on a podcast, so you know, right? So it just, it's taking all of those conversations and molding them into a story. But then on top of it, yes, there were news reports coming out. So I had this like, I have my office in my apartment and like 
women would, some women would announce or there would be like a big news story and I would like print it out and I would tack it up on this bulletin board in my office. And I did end up the second, the, there's three sort of parts of the book. It's broken up into three sections. And the last part of the book, I do write more about, I think, this as a movement. And so there's a whole chapter about how this was happening, the surge of Democratic women running for office, what was happening in the background. Well, yes, there was a Women's March happening, and and that ended up being its own movement. There was the Me Too movement that was also taking place. You know, shortly before the election, we had the, you know, Brett Kavanaugh and Dr. Christine Blasey Ford hearing and, and how that influenced everything. So there was a snowballing effect and a lot of reporting got, it was really, really difficult to decide what to put in the book and also to make sure though that we didn't lose the personal narratives of the women who I had been following. So I sort of think about it as these two layers. So there's like this very in the weeds layer where you're eye level with these women, you're in their homes with them, you're on the campaign trail with them. I spent election night sitting on the floor of Abigail Spamberger's hotel room with her while just like her, like we were sitting there waiting to see what the results would be. So there's this very personal layer, but then there is this much bigger story that gets woven through and I think really comes out in the last section of the book which includes how these different movements were influencing the campaigns. And then the other thing I think is really important to the book is that three of the four main characters are women of color. And I also wanted to make sure that the intersectionality, that the issues that women, because not running for office as women, right, it sounds like this one big thing and that there's one sort of blueprint for it and there's not. It's very different to run for office if you are a low-income woman, if you are a woman of color, if you're an LGBTQ woman and all these trans women. So just getting these things in there and trying to shed light on them without losing sort of that very personal feeling of the book too. So One really interesting part of the book was this unspoken sisterhood you found between women and the candidates who were running and that people would take them under their wing and say things like, how are you holding up? And assume that it was like such a challenge. And are you making time for yourselves? If people would say, are you doing okay? How's your self-care? And Abigail's Spanberger would say, I'm like, I don't have fucking self-care. I'm running for Congress. I'll take a nap in November. Do you want me to win this or do you want me to go to yoga? Yeah. <laughs> so, Which is basically, in my experience with her and having interviewed her for, you know, really followed her story for two years, is very, a very Abigail mindset. Yes. So she, I mean, she's coming at this, you have to remember too, she's a former CIA operative, right? So she's a, she's a cool customer. Like there's not much that sort of rattles her. And I think something that she, I remember when she, we had this conversation, she was telling me about this. She was actually about to head into a fundraiser. She was here in New York. And so we met up and I was interviewing her and just kind of catching up on the previous few weeks. And she said it was well-intentioned a lot of the time, right? So she, yes. there were, we know that around these, these women who were running, that there was a huge sort of groundswell of women who were newly becoming activists who, or who were newly engaging in the political process. So women who hadn't canvassed or phone banked for a candidate before were really kind of joining these movements and getting behind these female candidates. And that was a big part of what helped them win. And she recognized that. And a lot lot of time it would be well-meaning, right? But there's a difference. I think the way she put it was something like, there's a difference between someone saying to you, oh, are you hungry? Let me go grab you a plate. Let me go make you a plate. You're busy. You're talking to people. We're at this fundraiser. 
And how are you doing? Are you hungry? How are you really doing? Like, oh, you look, you look skinny. You know, that kind of thing is, is not helpful. And so anyone who says you look skinny to me, I would find (laughs) very helpful. So just keep it coming. (laughs) But no, I see what you're saying. Uh, Right. right, But, but just more of this action. So she did talk about some of those interactions and like, you know, questioning too, like, would, would you say this about a male candidate? Like, would you be pulling over, you know, people would talk to her sister at at, at events and kind of be like, how is she really doing though? Like, she seems fine, but like, tell me the, how is she really doing as if she should be falling apart at the seams? And I do think there's a recognition among women, and I understand this a bit better now. I'm a new mom and I kind of get this now. I do think there's a recognition among women, especially women who are moms, that life is so hectic. And she was a mom of, of three young girls. And so, her daughters, when she was campaigning, were all under the age of 10. So, and she was working. And then she was, then she ended up leaving her job to run this campaign. A campaign is grueling. And so people who I think are really familiar with that process as well, a campaign on its own is grueling. Being a mother of three on its own is grueling. So combining those two things, I can imagine how women would look at that and say, gosh, how is she doing it? You did write about really beautifully how exhausting it was to be a candidate. And I feel like just following this book along and seeing what it was like really showed that as much as told it. But you said, typically we get to see only a very narrow view of what it's like to be a candidate. In reality, running for office is exhausting. Running for office means dealing with online trolls and Facebook rants and attacks on your character. Running for office is a time suck. It takes you away from your family, your job, the gym you joined months ago and haven't set foot in since. Running for office means having men tell you how you should wear your hair. Running for office means having women tell you that you should start smaller. Running for office is a long, hard slog, a brutal marathon, that often pits women against centuries of bias. And yet, as you say in the book, most women say, well, someone had to run. Yeah. So tell me a little about that and the impetus for all these women. Yeah. Well, so, and what we know, right, from the 2018 elections is that there were so many first-time candidates. So these were women who had not run for office before, who, something I would hear a lot is actually that these women were perhaps more engaged than the average person, right? So they might be really involved locally in their communities or with various nonprofits or things like that. But, and they, a lot of them would tell me, oh, I always was kind of interested in running for office. I just thought it was something I would do later in my life. And this is really common. So there's a lot of research that speaks to this, but the things that have tended to keep women off the ballot historically is one that they don't think they're qualified enough or that they have to have this perfect political resume in order to run. And the other is that no one asks them to run. No one encourages them to run. Men get encouraged to run for office. And men are also, and we see this outside of the political world as well, but, or much more frequently, or maybe would say like, well, I, I might not have all the qualifications, but I can do this. Like, I think I should do this. I would be good at it. So those things really went away to a certain extent, I should say, not completely. But those things really went away, I think, with the 2016 election in that women saw in Hillary Clinton this incredibly qualified candidate who had a long political resume. They saw her lose, and she lost to she lost to a man who many Americans knew as the star of The Apprentice, a man with no political qualifications to speak of and who, on top of that, had run a blatantly racist and sexist campaign. And they saw him take her place. And so I think there was this feeling, and I would hear this from women when I was talking to them, but there was this feeling of kind of, well, if that guy can like, if he can be president of the United States, then surely I can run for my state legislature or my city council or for Congress. 
And what that starts to do is it starts to kind of build a pipeline. So the more women we get into these state legislatures and in Congress, you know, then you start talk, then you start, you think about the future, you think about 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and what the impact of that can be. I totally lost sight of the question. I was um, really, I, me too, but that was really an interesting <laughs> answer. Also, off, something, you, something you said yeah. also I wanted to go back to about Spanberger yeah. and her school-age kids is that you said in the beginning of her campaign, she was afraid to admit that her yes. kids were young yeah. because it would somehow make her seem less qualified, that she'd be too distracted or have too much else going on in a way. And that by the end of her campaign, she was like completely embracing yeah. it and was like, these are the ages of my kids. I have school age children. You know, she, she wasn't like yeah. dancing around it anymore. Well, this is one of the great examples of how women changed the conversation in 2018. So there's what we know, and again, this is this comes from 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 research, but what we know is that female candidates with young children, voters tend to express concern how those women would handle balancing the demands of their family with the demands of their constituents. And men don't face that because male candidates don't face that because it's too it's often assumed that if they have children their wives are at home with the kids and actually having kids really benefits male candidates you know having uh, sort of that idea of the family man and it shows responsibility and maybe in, some people might see that as saying something about his character and what have you and with women there's just more of this concern and i think a lot of that just comes from the fact that we still think of mothers as being the primary caretakers. And so she was really aware of that. It was completely understandable to me knowing that research, even when I first started talking to Spanberger and when she was saying, so like in the, early in her campaign, like when she wasn't used, now she's very used to talking to the media, but early in her campaign when she wasn't, she was like very prepared about, okay, when reporters ask me about my kids, this is going to be my answer and I'm not going to give their ages because her youngest daughter was three at that point. She was like, I'm not going to give them their ages. I'm just going to say, oh, I, yes, I have school-age children and just kind of leave it there and hope that it didn't press further. And yeah, I mean, then I think it was maybe two months before the election, she came out with this, this ad, this TV ad that featured her three daughters. It opened with the three of them playing on the floor and saying, you know, my mom's like a superhero and, and this like really adorable ad. And she had completely at that point embraced it. And then on election night, actually, when she, after she won and she was on the stage downstairs at the Weston in Richmond and she actually, and her daughter, her youngest daughter, Catherine, kind of kept crawling up to the stage and wanted to be next to mom and knew it was really exciting. And finally, Abigail just picked her up and kind of put her on her hip and just kept going. And the women in the room went wild. And it was really this emotional moment because the power of that, right, the power of seeing a woman who who's going to represent you and that her life actually looks like your life, that she's juggling the things you're juggling too. I think there, the impact of that is so, so huge. And we just don't see it enough. And I love in that moment yeah. how you wrote how she gave, she, you said something like she gave her husband one of those looks like you're doing this wrong. Like, let me just take the kiss. Yeah, well, that flick of the wrist, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, that yeah, anyone yeah. knows that sort of yeah. like, no one yeah. can see us because we're, right, yeah, sorry, but like but this, that like, that flick yeah, of the like, Give me the kid. Give me the kid, give yeah, him to me, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that's so recognizable. But yeah, I mean, there was this transformation and that was just sort of one example of how when you have so many more women running and in 2018, a lot of the women who were running for office had kids. So it normalized it. You know, there's Luba Gretchen Shirley who ran for Congress out on Long Island. She didn't end up winning her election, but she did have two toddlers when she was running. And people would say, you know, like the advice used to be, like, don't bring your kids to campaign events. Like, you know, like it's, 
you don't want to like overdo it with the mom thing. And she was like, I don't know. I got, I have to bring my kid to campaign events. Like my babysitter canceled. Babysitters are $22 an hour. Like this is too expensive. And this is just how it has to be. She actually successfully petitioned the FEC and was able to change campaign finance law so that candidates can use campaign funds to pay for childcare, which is something that both men and women benefit from, right? So a lot of dads running for office too, like now that helps their families. But of course, it really is a game changer for women. So for people who need help paying for childcare, one thing you can do is run for office. You can run for office. Get donations (laughs) and pay for your babysitter. This is a great loophole to know that. (laughs) Yeah, but really, again, I, I think it was just so, I loved that. And I love that that's in the book, but I, I loved that because it, I think again, shows women paving the way for other women behind them and just creating this real change. I mean, our whole, our whole election, you know, our whole system has really been designed by men for men. And so to see women disrupting that was great. And I also wanted to be able to show, well, how are they disrupting it? And just changing that conversation about this is what it looks like to be a candidate. And this is who I am. And you're going to see my kids. And because I have kids and that is also part of what I'm bringing to the table. Um, it speaks also to one of the big things that helped women win in 2018 was that they were so authentic. And there was, I think, this feeling of just, there was a lot of urgency to running. I think people felt like a very big shift had happened politically in our country and that we were going off the rails. And there was this feeling of, I just have to get in this because I I feel like I could be doing better. You know, I don't think it's just in politics, the shift to authenticity. I mean, I feel like in a lot of different spheres and industries. I feel like bringing your kids in is sort of getting more acceptable in a way than it used to be. Yeah. And and especially from the point of view of women. I mean, I think pretending like everything's under control and whatever, like, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like kids in the back of conference calls and, you know, I'm sorry. Right. I don't know. I just feel like all of that is now sort of, you know, there's such a huge shift, like women in the workplace, whatever. And now it's like, not that it's calming down, but it's like, okay, well, we have to find a way to make this work without like pretending that we don't have kids. Right, exactly. So yes. I feel like it's not just in this yeah. industry necessarily, but this is how it's reflective in the Right, this is how it sort sphere. of came yeah. out in the political sphere for sure. And I think you're absolutely right. Like people, people really want to feel a genuine connection these days. And it used to be, I mean, even if we're just talking about politics, it used to be that everything was kind of filtered through the media. And now there's social media and you can have your Instagram and kind of show whatever side of yourself that you want to, as you can across industries, you know, see this with celebrities now too. So it used to be celebrities were really relying on like the celebrity profile and everything else. And now they can kind of create their own image and narratives online. Good, good or bad though. Yeah, I mean, good or bad. I mean, this is not always <laughs> such a good thing, but yes, it is, it is a thing. After doing all this research and reporting, would you run for office? Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I, I would never say never, but no. I mean, that's not something that I went into this as that has never been like an aspiration of mine. I think writing this book, my I've been a journalist for 14 years. I wanted to do justice to these women's stories. If I can, through this book, do that and then perhaps also inspire other women who might be interested in running or get women who maybe aren't as politically active right now, but are curious about how to step into that, whether it's as a candidate or an advocate or organizer or whatever it may be, then I feel like that might be a good use of my skill set toward this goal of getting more women into office and having better representation. But no, I mean, it's not some like aspiration that I've personally have had. Do you think that the upside of it is worth 
everything. I won't say the downside, but all the work and the exhaustion and the being in the public eye. I mean, there's a lot you have to. There's a lot. Yeah. There's a a lot you have to put up with to give yourself in this way to be of service to your country. There's a lot of baggage. Yeah. Seeing it all unfold. Like, would you tell a close friend to do it? Like, like what's your inside scoop here? And someone's like thinking like, yes, I really want to do it. I'm passionate. I want to help. But Ah, can I? Whatever. Yeah. What do you think? So Catalina Cruz has maybe the best answer that I've heard to this question, so I'm going to quote her. She says, if you're going to get, if you want to run for office, that is great, but you shouldn't be doing it because it's a next step in your career. You shouldn't do it because it feels like it might be glamorous or it might elevate you in some way. You should run for office if you want to serve. Mm -hmm. It's about service. So if that is in your heart and that motivates you and compels you, absolutely, right? Because you don't, what we know now is that you don't have to have everything that I think a lot of women have always thought you need, right? You don't have to have the most powerful network. You don't have to have the richest friends. You don't have to have the long political resume. I mean, there are ways to run for office and be really successful without those things. And so I'm glad that through this book, too, you can really see how women did it at various levels of office. So not just for Congress, but for state offices as well. I feel like this is why there was that sort of movement just for a minute of maybe Oprah would run. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, I do. Right. And it's like, yeah. oh, great. I'll vote for her. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. Like, you want someone you can look up to and you respect. And I yeah. feel like you could, if you're smart enough, you figure it out. But that's, I feel like that's the way people think about elected yeah. officials right yeah. now. <laughs> it's not glamorous, right? So I think, and, and I thought about this a lot when I was writing the book, we typically get to see sort of this thin slice right, of what it is to run for office. So we see candidates at events. We might see videos of them on the debate stage with the lights and they're at the podium or we see them when they win and they're on the stage again. And that's great, but that's such a small piece of what this is. I mean, it is not glamorous. Again, when I say like when I met, the first time I interviewed Abigail Spamberger in person, we were in a messy playroom in her house with like her kids downstairs Catalina Cruz and I met at a coffee shop. I mean, Ana Escamani and I were out. I was eight months pregnant. I was I was down in Florida with her, and it was like high 80s, and we were canvassing and walking oh, around her district. Sounds awful. Eight months pregnant. Eight months pregnant in hot Florida, like having to do anything that involves leaving your house. Yeah, she was so yeah. sweet because she kept like giving me water and and was very patient with me when I had to like keep finding bathrooms. But I think that you know I just and I was in Memphis in the middle actually of like a completely. The first time I was with London Lamar, we were, it was like the grass was frozen in Memphis. It was just this, it was so, so cold and and driving around with her. And you really do see that this isn't for the faint of heart. I mean, running for office, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of women who are inspired by the success that women had in 2018. And that's a really great thing. But I hope, you know, with the book, I really wanted to show I didn't want to do this book that was sort of like rah, rah, women running. Like it's so great. I was it is great, but I also wanted to show really that gritty reality of what it looks like. It should be called like ultra marathoning for office, not running. Yeah. Right? Because it's like a, you have to be like a triathlete. You can't just like saunter. This isn't yeah. like a no, there's around no the reservoir. You no. Know, like you yeah. are in it, like crawling. Like what's that race with the military when you're like on your hands? And oh, like races? a tough mutter. Yeah, tough mutter. <laughs> kind of I feel like running Bravos is like a tough mutter of a career, right? Yeah. You have to like get in it. and Yeah. I mean, then there's very little sleep. I mean- 
you're constantly doing events. You have to be, the most effective way to reach voters is to be face-to-face with them. Like you are not going to win on social media, no matter how great your posts are or whatever. You have to get out there. You have to knock doors. Knocking doors, well, what does that look, what does that mean? You're going to have people say really bad things to you. Sometimes they're going to slam a door in your face. I was at an Emerge America boot camp. It was sort of a training for women who were planning to run for office. We were down in Atlanta and some of the advice they were getting was, literally what to do if someone pulls a gun on you. I mean, this is, it's no joke, right? And then fundraising. I mean, the realities of fundraising when you are a first-time candidate, it's not just like, oh, I'm going to like write an email and people are going to, you know, max out their donations to me and that's going to be great. No, that's not what it looks like. It's sitting down with your phone, contacting every single person you know. Like imagine asking people you haven't seen in 10 years or like your college roommate's friend or your ex-boyfriend or whatever it is to donate to your campaign. Asking people for money is a challenge. Women have, they're doing it, they're overcoming it. But I think especially for women, we know that that's been something that's incredibly uncomfortable. And what they have to remember is you're not asking for it for yourself, you're asking for it for your campaign. But I did have, I mean, there were moments, I was told when I, before I went to the boot camp, it was like, when we do the fundraising, because they really make them make the calls right there. It's not just practice. They were like, watch the bathroom, watch how many women will go in the bathroom because it's so intimidating. And sure enough, I saw that. I mean, Spamberger even saw, I wasn't at her training, but she said that she went in the bathroom and cried because the woman next to her was like, oh, you know, I'm going to make this. Well, I have a, I have an event with, you know, Senator Duckworth and I'm in touch with Wendy Davis and we're going to do all these things. And Spamberger was sitting there like, oh my God, she knows these people. I don't know anyone. Like, I don't know anybody. Like, what am I doing here? I'm such like a, like I'm... I'm so far behind, like, and she went in the bathroom and cried. And there was a a former congresswoman who's, you know, from a different generation who came in and saw her crying. And Abigail was like, she just gave me this look of, like, total disgust, oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> like this awful, awful feeling. Of course, Abigail ended up being an amazing fundraiser and, you know, won her election and did very, very well. So she figured that out. So you're clearly like a brilliant reporter and like you wrote about it beautifully, you wove in the narrative, like it read, like I, you know, like page turning type of narrative woven in with a lot of facts and things I didn't necessarily know. So you finish this, are you going to keep covering political stuff or are you switching your, you know, putting your hooks into a totally different topic now. What is your next move yeah. aside from trying to get your kid not to throw his, yeah, not to get his not to fish off his food at me. Um, <laughs> so yes, I mean, I actually had this call with my agent yesterday and we were talking about it. I think that right now, you know, I didn't even really, we didn't even finish the last, the thing with doing a book like this is that the timeline is incredibly brutal. So it was two years of reporting, but I only had, after the election, when I knew really what I was writing. So I had written a few chapters, some of which didn't even make it into the book. I had written a few chapters, but really without knowing, okay, is this going to be this really inspiring, amazing story of all these women who won? Or are these women all going to lose? And I'm going to have to do this book about what went wrong and where we go from here. And I didn't know the answer to that until election night. So I had this like eight-week period that was really intense, and we wrote it, and then, or I wrote it. <laughs> we, I'm talking about my editor who I was constantly going back and forth with. But I had this eight-week period where I wrote the book, most of the book. And then there was like, a, I think we did edits through February and March. I hired an independent fact checker. So there was a fact checking process. And then 
we didn't do the final line edits on the book until June. Then there's this big sort of promotion and press push that, that you spend a lot of time on in the lead up to the book. The book came out last week of August, and I've just been since then I'm getting approached now to do some articles, stuff on this topic, but then also just talking about the book and being out there. So I really even haven't had that second of just, okay, like what is my next thing and like what am I going to do? So I think I'm going to, I have some deadlines right now, so I'm going to kind of get through those. And then my plan is to maybe take like two weeks off in December and just like, you know, see my kid and (laughs) spend some time just letting my mind kind of wander a bit and think about what that next project might be. I didn't mean to put you on. No, it's okay. <laughs> Next book title, it's due on my desk in uh, two weeks. Thank you very much. My yesterday was like, oh, so like what ideas do you have? And I was like, my brain is saturated. Like a book like this, I mean, this was so much reporting. It was really two years of that. And then plus the writing process and then the promotion process. And there hasn't been a break yet in it. So December will really be my first break. So yeah. Sometimes yeah. you need, you just have to regroup. You need the time so. to... Do you have any advice to aspiring authors, especially in the kind of journalistic reporting, reportage, you would say, type of book versus like, versus, you know, fiction, but this particular type? Yeah. Or just whatever you want to say. Or just whatever I want to say. (laughs) I guess, gosh, do I? I think obviously it's important to be passionate about the topic. I cannot imagine having worked on this for this period of time and with this much. You had to, it had to take over I'm trying to think of like how I can say this. It doesn't sound, I mean, so many women go back to work after having a kid. I had my first kid throughout, I got pregnant four months after I got the book deal and then didn't know how sick I would be and didn't know, was like incredibly naive about what the aftermath of that would be like, but it was primary season. Like I gave birth in the middle of primary season. There was no way given the book that I was doing that I could sit out. And so I think it was about three weeks after I gave birth, I kind of went back into the reporting and the writing again. And I can't, and it took me away from my, I probably wouldn't do it again that way, to be honest with you. I think I would have just taken a good six weeks and really just let myself have that time with my son. But I don't think that I could have, and I think with any job that you're doing, there's always that personal sacrifice and, and just giving up something that, or giving up a certain time or of yourself. It was worth it to me in that I was so passionate about this project. These women were so incredible to me. What they were doing was so gutsy to me. And I I just think if you're going to do a book, you obviously need to like really, really believe in it. I think there's some books out there, and I'm I'm not talking about any book in particular, but there's, you know, there are these books that kind of come out that just feel like the person wanted to do a book. And it was just like, it's some idea that they've packaged and it comes out and it's, you know, whatever. But I really believed in this. It was worth going back after three weeks to me. And so I guess like if you're going to do this kind of book and you're going to do something that is a really long reporting process and that you're going to have to be in the weeds with for a long time, it's obviously important to do something that's close, close to your heart. Otherwise, I would say just drink a lot of coffee. (laughs) I was actually at one point, I was breastfeeding my son and I got to a point, I stopped breastfeeding him at six months and I was in the thick of the book writing then. I think I had about four weeks until my deadline. And, you know, kids at that age don't really sleep through the night. So like my husband and I were like up in the night and we were every morning started at like 4 a.m. and our day would start at 4 a.m. And it was just a really wild time. And I was like, I'm not going to survive this without coffee. And I did kind of get to a point where I was like, 
this is way too much caffeine. I can't be breastfeeding anymore. And I really, I stopped breastfeeding. I just couldn't, I had to like give on some of those things that maybe I wouldn't have. But I can't believe you made it six months without coffee. It was kind of just, sort of, well, no, 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 I know. Well, let me clarify. Oh, okay. I, I would allow myself like a latte a day, which is completely fine, by the way, like do what you have okay, to do. Sure. But no, I mean, at that point, like to get through, it was yeah, like, it was like a four stuff. latte. Yeah. <laughs> it was a four <laughs> coffee a day just to kind of make it through those sort of 14 hour writing days. So, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, women do a lot more. I mean, there's, I mean, I, I'm incredibly fortunate. Like I, there's women who are forced to go back to work and who work on their feet for 12 hour, you know, shifts after they give birth. So I'm in no, I'm by no means special, but it, it definitely just personally going through it. I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is tough. Like this is what people talk about. And you know, it's, it's no joke. <laughs> it's no joke. <laughs> no joke. Well, thank you for going through it. And thanks to your son for sparing a little of you so that you could report and, and produce this magnificent book that's really important and inspiring and, and really awesome. Well, thanks so much. No this was so thanks fun. Thanks for going on. <laughs> this episode has been sponsored by Book of the Month Club, bookofthemonth.com. Enter code Zibby to get your first book for $5. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 